All right, everybody, welcome to New England Alive, produced by 360 Monadnock. We are here today uh, with Eric Cooper. We've met Eric a few times. Eric is always a pleasure to uh, to be around and to mingle with and talk to. He's, uh, he's full of energy, has a very interesting story, and uh, we can't wait to talk to him. So, Eric, everything is off the cuff, unscripted. We there's This conversation could go wherever you want it to go, or I want it to go, or we can collaboratively make it go anywhere we want. So, welcome to the show. What uh? What's new, Eric? What's happening? Oh, so much. I love podcasting. I used to be a competitive public speaker, and nothing was scripted. I was a debater, so it was back and forth speeches. Um, off the cuff is my thing. Chaos is my thing. So I'm into this. I'm into this. So much going on in my world. Been looking forward to talking to you guys for a couple weeks. I think the first time we met was at Murphy's, right? I think I was out. I was out like having some dinner with some marketing guys or something out there. And, yeah, it was, uh, it was Kendall and I we were sitting at the bar and I think you guys, you came in with a, a group of people Yeah, and, uh, and you sat down and we could, there was like instantaneous energy. What? Why don't you let me do that? Do what? I'm the switcher. You are killing me right now. I just, I'm looking at paper. I can see the thing. Anyway, sorry. All right. So... We're going to edit that part out. Um, I just stopped recording on the computer. It's recording on camera, so we'll just go from there. So anyway, this is just a regular regular old podcast with two cameras recording, and uh, we are good to go. Oh, you're I'm not doing it, no, because I'm not going to run the switcher. All right. So. Gotta, All right. I, I got to move that camera, though, because the minute you put your hand up. I'm not going to put my hand up. You're not? No. Okay. More technical difficulties <laughs> by my beautiful bride-to-be. Are you good? Okay. Well, this will be a comical one. Yes, it will. <laughs> the trials and tribulations of podcasting when you have a perfection um, creative person in the same room. So uh, off the cuff is gone. So now we're <laughs> scripted. No, I'm kidding. So yeah, so no, Murphy's. Uh, Murph's, is it Murphy's? Murph's? Murphy's Tap Room. They are in Bedford. They have a really good, they had the place in Manchester, but they put the place in there and they have the carriage house. So they do the weddings and events there and everything. And uh, my office is right across the street from the copper door and everybody just always goes to the copper door. So they, they, these marketing guys were coming up and we were doing some work together and they're like, you know, can we go anywhere that's not the copper door? And I was like, well, Murphy's haven't been there in a while, but Murphy's tap room, shout out. Food is really, really good. Um, drinks are good. People are great. And so that's why we went there that night and, and met you guys. And we had a lot of fun. That was a fun we night. Did. Yeah, no, we totally night. did. And you, I, if I remember correctly, you were wearing a colorful shirt. Oh, I was. I, I have a rule, right, of being utterly original. So whenever I'm meeting, I was meeting, I think I was out utterly there Utterly obnoxious people. or utterly original? <laughs> well, depending on who you are, you may, <laughs> you may interpret that different ways. But, yeah, I think I was, was I wearing pink that day? I think it was maybe, maybe, I think I was wearing like my pink like golf sweater, but I was meeting three new people that I had never met in person before in the marketing team because they had come on board in the firm during like COVID and everything. So I'd never actually met them. And I knew that they were coming up and we were going to be going out after we had some meetings and stuff like that. So I said, you know, and I'm going to make an impression. I have this, I have this purple suit theory. Okay. So I have a Prince purple suit Get from out. a company called oppasuits.com. And it's like the purplest, it burns your eyes, it's so purple. And every single new company that I go to a function at or whatever, like I strategically pick a time. And last time was the Christmas party. It was like a company Christmas party that I showed up at. And I wore the purple suit. Nobody ever forgets me, ever. Well, but I, I don't think it takes a purple suit to not forget you, Eric. I mean, <laughs> you, left, you left a great impression on Kendall and I. And then we ran into you again at... The Fisher Cats game, we're yes. like, whoa, we know you. And yes. It, and again, it was that energy. And I'm all about the energy, right? I mean, that's how you know you're going to really get along with somebody. That's right. Clients, people in general, all of it, right? So, right. So, no, it's been it's been a very cool experience, you know, interacting with you. I, I we have to do this again, and the next time we do this, you do have to wear that that purple uh, print suit. It's a plan. All right. So, why don't you walk us through what it is that you do? Yeah. So what I do is I work with business owners in helping them align their personal business and financial goals to create the life they want to live. That's the simplest way to put it. How that 
works functionally. There's a lot of technical expertise in terms of financial planning and building business value and, and all the nerdy stuff, right? That, you know, your consultants will talk about and your wealth managers and your whatever. Um, and over a 10 year career in the space, I've really built an expertise to be able to apply that knowledge. But really what my passion is being a change agent, man. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I started my first business when I was 15. I know you're an entrepreneur at heart. Kendall's an entrepreneur at heart. And those types of people, like we think differently. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people that have the ability to go out there and make money. They have a service, they have a, a, you know, a skill, they have a product, intellectual capital where they can go make money. But making money isn't necessarily a business. It's not something that can run independently of you. It's not something that can outlast you. It's not something that has intrinsic value, mm -hmm. right? And exchange of goods and services for a fee, anybody can do that. But right. building a real business, that's that's other level kind of stuff, right? And so for people that are interested in that part of it or people who have reached that part of it and are figuring out how to scale that, how to corral that or how to translate that into living the life they want to live, I can't tell you how many business owners that I've interacted with and talked to that make great money and they're not living the life they want to live because of what they've done is they've created a house they didn't want to live in. They've created a jail that's very profitable, so they can't leave. They've created something that's dependent on them, so they can't leave. They've created something that's become part of their identity and lost their identity outside of it, so they can't leave. And you end up with people that have built something amazing, but they are not necessarily proud of it. They're not gaining the life efficacy for themselves out of it that they should be getting. So are they basically, they're operating to operate at that point, right? I mean, you can't, you can't walk away from it. You can't. You can't do anything new. You're just, you're married to it. It's your life and, and that's it. So, so what, what kind of process do you have to, you know, facilitate that kind of a conversation with somebody about, you know, what it is that you do and all those details? Yeah. So there's a process to do that. Um, that's kind of been curated over the course of 10 years of kind of being in the you know, banking and insurance and mm -hmm. wealth management and consulting and advising and all this kind of stuff. Um, but really the process is the relationship. Right. So what clients work with me to do um, as whether it's financial planner, exit planning advisor, whatever the case is, is to lead them through that process. But when you have a process that is commoditized or scalable, right, what that also translates into is you have a process that's not customizable and you have a process that is overstructured. When we overstructure the process, we risk telling the story for our client instead of them telling the story to us. So there's a process and, you know, sets of deliverables that we go through and assessments and all that kind of stuff. But we really focus on working with business owners on an ongoing basis, right? It's not a moment in time kind of snapshot. We're really working with them on an ongoing basis to be the most trusted advisor, to organize their team, to understand them personally more than any other advisors taking the time to do that. All this stuff, right, whether you're thinking about business, whether you're thinking about investments or employees or selling your business or generational transfer, all this stuff, all this stuff is only relevant to the extent that it feeds up into some broader framework. And that framework is going to be custom for every single individual person and family situation that runs that business and owns that business and built that business and on, on their own sweat equity. Mm -hmm. um, so the process to do that is usually some sort of open-ending ongoing engagement, kind of like a personal trainer or somebody like that, where you're really hiring them to help transform your outcomes. Right. Um, there's not necessarily a timeline affixed to it. And uh, I tell clients all the time when we talk to them and see if we're a good fit, you know, really when we bring a client on, we're getting married to them, right? right? We're oh, here yeah. for the long haul. Totally. And, um, and that's why the work is so rewarding. That's why it's so difficult. That's why it's so involved. And that's that's why I love doing it. So what is your, if, if you had an ideal client, right? I mean, I think all of us business owners that provide services, to, <laughs> we all have that ideal client, right? Do we actually ever find it? I think a lot of times we do because I think that, you know, the energy that we put out attracts, you know, that same kind of energy, right? So, but what is... Is there a target for you? I mean, if somebody's listening to this right now, I mean, is there a specific demographic that you're looking for? Or, yeah. Or looking to interact with from your standpoint? So the way I'll answer that is really the way I filter clients mainly is by psychographic, right? So a lot of people in my industry will have certain things like the business needs to have X amount of revenue or, you know, I work with people with X amount of assets or whatever. Um, and the truth is there are good and bad clients, for me, right, mm -hmm. you know, just talking about me individually, everybody else's parameters might be different. You know, there might be really lucrative clients that are bad clients for me. 
where, you know, our energy just doesn't jive and it's not right. going to fit and I'm not going to be able to bring, be a change agent in their life the way that I want to be a change agent in their life because it doesn't fit for whatever reason. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm not the best advisor for them. So the, the number one element of the psychographic that I work really, really, really well with um, are people that are agile to change. Entrepreneurship, um, Patrick Bet David said on on his uh, Valuetainment podcast um, that it's 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 almost like this cruel game where you have to continually recreate yourself or else you lose. And the people that are able to pivot, the people that are able to change quickly, and the people that are able to lead through change, the people that are willing to think differently, the people that are willing to delegate to advice and be led, those are people that end up winning. Um, and what we see a lot of times in the business owner world, right, is when you have somebody build something from nothing to the point of profitability, they continue with those behaviors and those ways of thinking, but what got you there won't necessarily get you here. Mm-hmm. When you're building a company of significance, that's different than building a company of success, right? right. So the psychographic we work really well in is people that are already run businesses that are profitable, that are solvent, right? Where they have a minimum viable product, where they're doing good work, they're proud of what they do, but they're striving to build that company and that legacy of significance, both financially for themselves and for their families, for their employees. And there's a grander vision beyond necessarily just the profit margins or the scale of the business, right? Um, Scaling business doesn't necessarily mean you're doing better. No, it just means you're taking on, maybe taking on more overhead. You just might be taking on more overhead, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that the quality of what you're providing is different. Right. Um, So people that are really striving for a company of significance and a legacy of significance as opposed to simply success are people that we work really well with. Because when we talk about aligning the business goals and what's going on within the business um, with the personal goals, a lot of that is, you know, we're talking life planning. We're talking values. We're talking efficacy. We're talking stuff that's kind of abstract. It's hard to sink your teeth into and metabolize. But unless we go through that process, and unless somebody's willing to go through that process um, or has answers to those questions, it's impossible to really advise them in a way that's going to be meaningful to them on business strategy, on exit and transition strategy, on wealth planning, on generational transfer on estate planning or any of that stuff. Um, so typically, you know, most of the businesses we're working with are somewhere between, you know, two to $15 million of EBITDA. Um, that's by no means exclusive, right? If it's right. more or less, it doesn't mean we won't work with them. But generally speaking, those are the types of companies, you know, owners of those types of companies, the ones that find the most value in our our services and what we do. That's really cool. I mean, it's intriguing to me. I mean, I I talk to a lot of people. I have, I mean, we just moved into this new office to get everything done. But prior to this, I mean, we had done 14, 15 episodes of New England Alive and I talked to a bunch of different business owners, right? And how they get started and, you know, what their trajectory has been. And did it, did you get down the path that you anticipated, right? And, and you said something very, it's very real. It's very true because I always talk about the pivot, right? And I think as an entrepreneur, as a business owner to be successful, you have to be able to pivot into new opportunities quickly, but strategically as well, right? Yes. I think a lot of businesses fail because people pivot quickly, but they don't look down the road. They're just looking at what's in front, right? Um, so that that hit home for me. So thank you for saying that because- What we call the decision frame, right? Right. When- You are striving to dominate Um, when you're striving to excel. The decision frame and the perspective at which you look at making tough choices is like a 10-year time frame. It's not Mm -hmm. a one-year time frame. Right. And when it comes to pivoting from a business strategy standpoint or or whatever the case may be, or even in your life, um, the people that win are the people that are able to endure the short-term pain and pivot for the long-term. Right. And when we think about you know, even a lot of business owners here in New Hampshire love this state. There's a disproportionate amount of owner-dependent, owner-operated businesses, largely from the baby boomer generation, um, which is kind of the case all over the country, um, that have a very difficult time pivoting. It's part of their identity. It's who they are. It's what they built. You know, their clients know them, their customers, right? It's it's part of yeah. their, they're, they're so proud of that. Um And that should be captured and that should be acknowledged and that should be honored and that should be continued. But when it comes to strategic pivoting, right, what got you here won't get you there. Right. What's going to get you to retirement isn't necessarily what got you to buy your first house. 
what's going to allow the next generation to assume your business and be able to pay you what it's worth so that you can eventually retire is not necessarily going to be the same strategy that allowed you to build it from the ground up. Right. So we think in a 10-year decision frame instead of a one-year decision frame, and really thought leadership is is the whole thing of advising, right? None of this stuff is something that a business owner's never heard before or nobody's ever read in a book. But when you're able to codify it and orchestrate it and apply it to an individual situation, um, I was talking to a great uh, business owner of a marketing company earlier today, and she was saying right right here in uh, in the Northeast, and she was talking about how translation is really the fundamental essence of advice. Um, in the advice world, it's kind of like any piece of information that you get in med school, I can get on WebMD.com. Um, almost every single piece of information as a financial advisor that I would have, you can get somewhere on the internet. But being able to orchestrate that into a meaningful tapestry where I can translate it to your situation is not a science. That's an art. That's a skill. Well, it definitely Something is, right? Because be every client you deal with is going to have a different set of parameters, right? Nobody, nobody is exactly the same ever. It, it's it's like that for us. There's no, there's no like, there's no boilerplate customer. Never. Everybody's needs are completely different, whether they want revenue opportunities, whether they want to, you know, build more engagement or or they want to get their message out to the masses. Right. And what are those masses? Right. There's there's so many variables. Right. It and you create that relationship and you you chip away at those variables. Right. To to put that story together so that you then can propose something to them that one creates value for them. Right. Right. But gets them to where they want to be. Right. Right. So what you're saying is no different than I think, well, us and how we run our business. Right. Um, I, I call it the dossier. Right. And, and you may like this. And I, I'm not making this about me, but you may you may get a kick out of this. So I spent my entire life in the yacht business. Right. In yacht sales. And when I first got my first sales job, this guy named Jack Irvin, I'll never forget him. Right. And this is tw- this is 2001. He said, Aaron, you got to create a dossier on every one of your clients. It's kind of like the FBI, the CIA, right? You, yep. you ask as many questions as you possibly can because the more you know about your customer, the better value you can create in your offering back to them and you'll have them as a client forever, right? Right. So that's what you're throwing down right now. Right? Th- that's exactly it. And we, we do that with... Our business owner clients, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a bunch of things out there. There's the entrepreneurial operating system. There's, you know, you know, the personal mission statement. There's yeah. vision state. There's all this. Got a couple of books over there too. You probably read. Yeah, I mean, it's, a ton yeah. of them. Yeah, right. But really, the overarching theme is helping somebody to translate their story and understand how to talk about themselves and understand what they care about, so that we can evaluate all advice through that framework. That's the paradigm of, of advice. The paradigm of advice is not about the output on a calculator. It's not about retirement by 65. It's not about selling my business for X. It's about some sort of deeper meaning for everybody, even if they haven't had the opportunity to necessarily or given themselves the space to sit down and think about that. So we talk about next level discovery in the paradigm of advice, whether it's an individual client or whether it's a business owner client or whatever the case is, we spend a lot of time talking about stuff that you'd probably assume doesn't have to do with the business or the money at all. But it helps me understand how, why you care about money, why it's important to you, how you derive value from it. Um, when I started in the business early on, you know, the training, you know, they, they, you know, there's the, the case studies that they bring you to, right? And it's like, okay, here's a situation somebody had and, you know, let's talk it through and here's what the advice that was given. What do you think? What would you have said? All this kind of stuff. And there's, you know, bless their hearts, a lot of people that have been doing, you know, financial services for a long time in a different era, a different type of, um, and one thing that they would always say to me, like the old timers is, you know, they look at these case studies and they'd say, I've seen this case a thousand times before. You know, this is what you want to do. You want to put this money here. You want to tell them to do this. You want to do blah, 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 blah. If you're thinking about a service economy, okay, I mow your lawn. The lawn is mowed. You pay me money. Or a commodity economy. I sell you the coffee. You have the cup of coffee. You pay me for the coffee. 
okay, that there might be such a thing as a standard case. Mm -hmm. The advice economy and the psychology around it, and I've spent a lot of time over the last three or four years really studying the psychology of the advice economy, which is exploding in America right now. Mm -hmm. It People buy differently. They perceive value differently. And the way you sell it has to be totally different. There is not such a thing in the advice economy as a standard case or as a, like, as a fact pattern. Right. Doesn't exist. No, it doesn't. And if you are committed to a scalable business where you can do business with 5,000 people, then the advice economy probably isn't for you, right? That's not for me. I don't have 5,000 clients. I don't want 5,000 clients. I want to do a good job for 5,000 clients, right? I only want five. (laughs) Same thing for you guys, right? I mean, when you talk about marketing, when you talk about translating somebody's essence and story into how they express their brand personally and professionally, like you can't do that for, you know, 500 people and you can't apply anybody else's situation to mine and vice versa. So the advice economy is really what I get excited about um, because the impact that had, that has the capability to have, we have an industry and we have an economy that is often packaged advice in a service or commodity model that has hurt people. That paradigm has been changing over the last 10 to 20 years. And I'm really looking to push that to, to push that to the front edge. I mean, that's why I left. I was in the commodity model, right? And I launched my own firm specifically because I had these deeply rooted values that nobody was a standard case. It can't be commoditized. And it's about so much more than the assets on the balance sheet, the sale price of the business, whether your employees have benefits, or even about your kid getting the business successfully. It's about so much more than that for people. How do I get to that thing? How do I be at the front lines of being the thought leader on helping that business owner get to that thing? I've been a heat-seeking missile on figuring out how to get to that thing. So what are some of the... What are some of the services that you provide? Sure. That's, I, I think, like, what what's on your menu? What's on my menu, right? So the way that we accomplish that functionally um, primarily is through personal financial planning. Okay. Okay, so even if you own a business, you own the asset that produces the income, we need to understand really what the wealth gap is, right? There's three main gaps, right, when it comes to personal financial planning and business. Whatever your business might be worth and what you might harvest out of it, whether you sell it, give it to your kid, gift it, whatever the case is, and the sidecars of money that you're funding elsewhere, right, there's oftentimes a gap between the income you're taking off the business and the assets that you need in place in order to replicate that. So that's a big part of it. Um and then there's a bunch of other considerations that go into that as well. But really, the personal financial plan is going to be the closest to the ground floor on how we can align how you derive value from money, where you should be saving your money, the types of tools you should be leveraging to make it do what you want it to do, right? Once we have a really good understanding of that, we understand how the business finances feed into your personal vision. And now we can start working on the business. And we can, and that's when we go into what we call the discovery phase of your business, which is really just the highest level assessment that you've ever had of your business. Everything through all the different cap, uh, forces of capital that might determine how transferable your business is and how you're able to exit off of it in the future. Now, we talk about exit and transition planning. I think it's important to note, not every business owner knows how they want to exit their business today. Some business owners are like, man, I'm... I'm old, I'm tired, you know, I want to wind down, you know, I'd like to sell this thing. A lot of people are still in the heat of building it and they're doing well and they're growing, right? They're not thinking about how I move off this thing. But the truth is we're all going to move off our businesses, whether it's by death or disability or force or will or whatever the case is. And just like all good planning, it starts with the end in mind. You save in a 401k if you have one, even when you're 35, even though you're not retiring tomorrow. So it's good to have an understanding of, okay, how do I build a business that gives me the maximum amount of flexibility to move off on my own timeline in terms, whether or not that's something I'm actively trying to do, right? So that assessment is going to take a look at the business and take a look at the business owner and help them understand how can I build a business of maximum transferable value? And how do I put myself in a position of strength to exit on my own timeline in terms of reap the maximum amount of profitability along the way? The other way that we engage right after that initial discovery phase is really the consulting along the way. Okay, we've identified these gaps. We need to, you know, leadership training. We need to expand the team. We need to, you know, diversify our streams of revenue. We've got customer concentration. We have a business that's too owner-dependent, right? You know, there's some family disputes that need to be figured out, whatever the case is. Okay, now we got to go take care of those problems. But not only do we have to take care of them, we need leadership in how to sequence them, how to prioritize them, the team members we're going to leverage to do it because a business owner can't do everything by themselves. I can't do everything by myself. I'm only one guy, right? You try. So, <laughs> I try. Oh, I do. Ask my wife. I definitely do. Um, 
but the execution of the concept is as important as, as the concept. Right. If I charge somebody the fee and give them the, the plan, the plan, like that's the, like the Neanderthal stages of like, you know, financial planning. It's like, here's the 64 page binder, do all these things. Let's talk next year and see how you did. It's not very valuable. So the being an execution partner and a thought leadership partner on an ongoing basis throughout the rhythms of life, because that business owner might have space to sit down and clarity to think through these things with you now. When they have a key employee leave next month or somebody goes out on maternity leave, they might not have that clarity for another four months, right? right. So you have to be able to be agile even in how you lead a client through. It's not necessarily just, okay, here's what we need to accomplish. But in this particular person's life, how do we affect the change most effectively and the fastest? And it's my job to manage that process and to really consult and organize the team around doing that. And we do that on an ongoing basis. And then the third gate, if you will, when somebody actually is going through an exit or a transition, depending on what exit or transition they're going through, whether they're selling the business, giving it to their kid, liquidating it, selling it to private equity. I don't care what, what the exit option is. Um, there's a lot of execution that goes along with that. And it goes a lot smoother and it's a lot more lucrative if we've done the preparation ahead of time, which is why we do this exit and transition planning and financial planning and all this kinds of stuff before. But there's a lot of work that goes into actually executing that and making sure that the due yeah. diligence is done, everything's done in sequence and the owner actually ends up. And, you know, the life after planning as a business owner myself, you know, I can, I can understand and appreciate like your identity kind of being wrapped up in the thing you do, that you've created. Um, we help business owners even after the exit and transition, not just in the financial planning, but in executing the life after plan. There has to be somewhere for that passion, purpose, and energy to go. We're gonna, there has to be some controls in place for the, the financial side of it too, right? I mean, Absolutely. if you sold your business, right? And you haven't ever had time to really enjoy the fruits of your labor. I mean, that can turn into a situation as well. The two-thirds of business owners regret selling their business within two years after selling it, and it has nothing to do with what they sold it for. And that's whether they're selling it third party, whether they're selling it to employees, selling it to their kid, doesn't matter. But they regret it within two years, and it has nothing to do with them not getting a fair price for it. Yeah. There was nowhere to redirect the passion, energy, and right. identity. So the personal financial planning and all these things we do along the way brings a business owner along a journey where those questions are answered. Um, it's never exactly how we expect. There's variables we can't control. But we're not. able to be agile right. and pivot and coach when we understand the value system of that individual and their family um, to really help them thrive even post-exit. And most of these people that are really serial entrepreneurs and really good at it, you know, they've always got another thing cooking, right? They might take a year off. They buy another business. They start a new thing. I mean, you're laughing because this is you. This is both of you two, right? I mean, what if you were to be able to sell this company that you're doing right now for $10 million to walk away, right? It's not like you'd do nothing for the rest of your life. I mean, you'd I'd go start something else. You'd go start something else. Exactly. And most of the people we work with, that's how they're wired. Whether that's philanthropic, whether it's another business, whether it's you know, just pursuing another passion. They never have the space to pursue. They're going in there starting something else. Mm -hmm. You know, and oftentimes we're starting the process all over again and we're doing it all over again, right? Because the, the principles apply no matter what business you're in or how you're applying that energy. The principles of planning, uh, the principles of value alignment, and the principle of efficacy in life are applicable to all those things. So it, in, in the whole spectrum of like working with people in businesses and finances and whatever, I enjoy the seat that I'm able to hold because I'm the one advisor that gets to be married to that client for their entire life cycle. You know, the business. So how, many, how many years have you been doing this now? Um, financial services, this is year 11. Okay. Um, in financial services in general. Um, and year five, owning my own my own Good firm, my own practice. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank You're you. Still a young dude. I'm still a young dude. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but I, but I practice what I preach, right? Yeah. There's a vision for the business that I'm building. I already have a vision for my exit plan. There's a purpose of significance far beyond, you know, the, the,
profit margins success. So part of it, you know, is taking my own medicine and really going through the process sequentially and doing things the right way myself. Mm -hmm. So I have the ability to share these experiences and this leadership and this guidance with the people that hire me to do it. And that's what makes it fun. Because in many ways, I'm along the same journey as my clients, right? Yeah, totally. And and that's what that's what makes it fun. That's awesome. Oh, that's a that's a great snapshot. You're gonna have to come back so we can dive into some more of these details. Oh, please. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of directions for this. And I mean, we've, we've been talking for a half an hour. It, it, it's like amazing to me how quick this goes by. But um, so what do you like to do in your off time? I mean, you're married, you have kids. I am. So I'm married, beautiful wife, Becky, been married uh, for seven years, going to be eight in January. Um, I have three kids. So my oldest is four. My youngest just turned one. Um, yeah. Your crazy. hands are full. <laughs> incredibly full. I'm a youth. I'm a youth leader at my church as well. So I run the the high school youth program. Um, I run this business, um, a couple businesses actually. Um, and what do I like to do in my free time? I'm a huge outdoorsman. I love to hunt, um, and I love to golf. Anything that gets me outside, but particularly those two things. I love to hunt. I love to golf. Um, and I love football. Well, maybe, you know, I'd like to talk to you about what you do and how it pertains to, you know, stuff that I have going on. And <laughs> I mean, maybe we should, you know, have this next discussion on the golf course. Uh, you golf? Yeah. I, Are you good? Oh, no. Dude. Horrible. I don't need, people ask me what my, my handicap is. I try to avoid that because here's the thing. When the you, ball. What's that? My handicap is the ball. There you go. There you go. Listen, I'm paying way too much money to care about that stuff. I'm going to go out there and gonna, I'm going to have fun. One thing I can do is hit bombs. Really? I can I can touch 300 yards at five foot four and a half. I can I can touch. You, got, you must yards. have long arms then. I have long arms for my height and good and good hip rotation. Really good hip rotation and yeah. torque. I was a baseball player, so usually that oh, doesn't translate go. well to golf. Oh yeah, baseball players always hit the bombs. Yeah, but I, can I was, you convert when you get on the green? That's I guess what it really boils down to. You know, to. it really depends on the day. <laughs> I mean, like I'm that guy. Like I have the ability to eagle a par five, but I will just as easily like get a seven on a par three. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Oh, that's, that's normal for me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, 18 holes, I probably, you know, nine of them suck and, and nine are, <laughs> and six are okay. And three are like, wow, that keeps you coming back for more. Exactly. Yeah. I just want that one hole or that one shot that keeps me coming back for more. Um, I've given up ever being on the PGA. Maybe I'll make the senior tour, but you know what? I got too many things I'm excited about. I got too many clients I love. Like I don't have time to, to golf as often now as, as I would need to, to do that. I'm so I don't have a handicap because I'm usually golfing nine because I just don't have five hours to. Oh yeah, it's it's crazy. And some of these I, have, I mean I haven't played out here yet, but when I live back in the Midwest or even Annapolis, I mean it, an eighteen hole round should take four four and a quarter hours. Yeah, and some days we're out there for six six and a half, and you're just like this isn't fun. This isn't where I want to be. You know, I'm like a twelve. 13 hole golfer like at nine I want more yeah but by the time I get to 14 like I'm good like you know I could wrap it up and go to the clubhouse and hang out well like, I mean it also depends on how many balls you have left in your bag though too right I mean 100%. I've had I've gone you know out with two dozen and, and hit you know whole nine and I have zero so it, yes you know yes yeah yeah when you're like kind of looking in the woods or, and, you know, to, yeah, to kind totally. of replace some balls that you lost because oh, yeah. you're afraid of running out before yep. the round. Oh, you're finding those ones stuck underneath the leaves that are, you know, they've been out there all winter. They're, you know, they're dark on one yes. side and light on the other. It looks like, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So uh, hunting, what, what kind of hunting do you like to do? I love it all. Um, what I do, um, and this is an interesting conversation, what I, what I, the hunting I love the most is bear hunting. I hunt bears here in New Hampshire. Um, New Hampshire has an abundance of bears. What I love about hunting in this country is the marriage of hunting and conservation. They're not in competition with each other. The conservationists are the ones that make the hunting laws. So human pressure really since the beginning of time has been a part of the ecosystem. Sure. And you look at, you know, whether it's population control numbers or all this stuff, there's a lot of good that hunting does from a conservation perspective. And bears are the most successful conservation story in American history. There was a time where we basically didn't have any bears left. We almost didn't have deers left. There was a, a time called market hunting. Their hunting was unregulated. People would hunt for food. They would also hunt and harvest the meat, and they would sell it. There was no regulation around it, right? right? 
So that's how you got guys like I forget his name. That guy that took Teddy Roosevelt out on the on the bear hunt that ended up getting him the name Teddy, or excuse me, made the the uh, the Teddy bear named Teddy. Um, but it's estimated he killed three thousand bears over his lifetime. He was a slave Stops. on a plantation, and the plantation owner sent started sending him out when he was ten to to get bears for the hide and the meat to sell and all that kind of stuff. And he was really good at it. So he ended up getting hired by other like landowners and stuff to do the same. Um, and after the Civil War, he actually got paid to fight for the Confederates. And after the Civil War, he was a free man, but he was like one of the few like black men that had earning power because he was so good right. at pulling wild animals out of the wild. So when Teddy did the hunt with him, it was like a huge controversy, like the president's doing a hunt with a with a black dude, right? So it was all this thing. Um, but anyway, that was the hunt where Teddy got on that bear where he didn't shoot the bear because he just didn't feel ethically right the way that they had captured the bear yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff. And he, and he was really like a huge influence in ethics and American hunting and conservation and National Park, Teddy Roosevelt and all that stuff. But anyway, this guy was estimated he killed like 3,000 bears. So you think about people killing these amount of animals. We had like no animals on the landscape in 1920. Fast forward to now. More than half the states in the country have a bear season. Some of them have so many bears, they're trying to find a way to get people to take more bears so they can reduce the bear population. So when you look at a lot of what we're doing with deer and what the uh, what the uh, what the uh, Turkey Federation has done and a lot of that stuff, bears are kind of at the front end of, like, that's the picture of the success story that we're going after for all these other species. Um, they're the most versatile game animal in our landscape from hide to fat to meat. If you've never eaten bear meat, it's the best red meat you'll ever oh, eat in I've your life. It. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and you know it. It and for me, I'm not a morning person. I hate to say, but uh, when you're doing deer hunting, you got to get up at like four in the four morning. morning. You're yeah. hiking out there. It's freezing cold. Tree it's twelve sands. degrees outside. Bear hunting. I can get out in September, um, and the prime time to hunt bears here is like probably like two to seven in the afternoon. Wow. So you can sleep in. You, you can, can sleep in. Wait for it to warm up a little bit. Work half a day. Yeah. Do your thing. It's seventy degrees outside. <laughs> like you know, it's it's a different. Yeah, it's a different thing. And and the majesty of those animals it fires me up. So that's awesome. I hunt ducks. I hunt deer. I hunt bear. I hunt turkey. I fish, but you know, bear is definitely like the like uh, you like trout fishing. I do. You like uh, creeks out in the middle of nowhere that are you know. Packed full of uh, little brookies. Yes, dude. Yeah. If it gets me outside, yeah, getting something I can eat, I'm in. Really, I'm in. Kendall, I think I got a. You know, you have a fly rod. I do. Okay. All right. Yep. It's we'll a date. To, yeah. Well, in that, and I'm. I'm. We have a pond in the backyard. Okay. It's spring fed, and we've been cleaning it up. And my plan is to put aeration in the pond, and uh, stock the thing with trout. Making a trout pond. So then you can just walk out the back door, walk down, and grab some dinner and go back to the house. That's there's a secret location that you got to blindfold yourself before you can even go there. You know, phones get stored in the microwave, right? Like, no, no location data, no pictures. Got got to protect your location. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, you, uh, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. I have some public land that I hunt, or excuse me, private land, but mostly I'm a public land hunter. Um, and I don't know, there's just something romantic about these lands that we all own as Americans and something also romantic about having to outwork everybody else and get deeper than anybody else and get up earlier than anyone else. I know I said I'm not a morning person, but there's something about that struggle that makes it so much more rewarding. Like, I mean, there's like guys I know that fly to Texas and they'll do those private leases and they'll kill like some 30 point buck or whatever in a fenced in like ranch. And and it's like, that's harvesting, not hunting. Like I would rather have to hike in. I mean, there's this one bear spot I have in New Hampshire. It's public land. Um, and I have to hike in like an hour and a half to get into the backside of this mountain. There's a lot of bears there. There's big bears there. Um, so if I ever shot a bear there, I don't know how I'd drag it. Yeah, how are you going to drag <laughs> got, that thing out? I mean, I got a sled, so like I have like okay. a bear sled, so like I could, but it, it would be a lot, a lot of work. And when you shoot a bear, especially since it's earlier season, if it's warm, like 
you know, so I have game you bags have and stuff so I can pack it out yeah. because you want to get it off the bones because you don't want that that stuff spoiling. And butchers notoriously hate um, game butchers doing bear because they're so oily and fatty, right? Like yeah. it'll, and it, almost all the bears are turned by the time they get they they get into the into the butcher. Um, yeah, there's something romantic about just hunting public land and doing it yourself. And, you know, I want to sit down at the table and eat that piece of meat where I participated oh, in the whole process, respected that animal, yeah. used all the parts of it. I worked for it. Like, there's a satisfaction in that that I think that, uh, you know, a lot of driven people, entrepreneur types can probably relate to. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, there's something about providing for yourself. I think that you take, you take a lot more... Um, there's a lot more benefit to me, right? Knowing that I did something. Yeah. Right. Rather than right. somebody else doing it for me. Right. And I think that's just life in general. Oh, hundred percent. Right? I mean, it's, it's everything. About, it's not even just business. Right. Right. hundred percent. And there's some people that are driven by, um, you know, comfort. And there's other people that are driven by choice. The people that are driven by choice usually will take the, the harder path. And, a lot of the people in the hunting community are very similar to the people I work with in the mm -hmm. business community. They value self-reliance. They value choice. They value control. Yep. They take ownership and agency over their own outcomes. They're responsible. They're ethical. Um, you know, the hunting community is the most ethical community of people I've ever been. And I am a adult onset hunter. Like I didn't grow up doing this. My dad is from the ghetto in Brooklyn, New York, and he worked his way out, which is why I have the life I have now. Thank God. You know, my mom's an immigrant from Belize. Like, like this was not a thing. Like, I didn't inherit the, you know, the camo and the guns from my grandfather and go out sure. deer hunting when I was seven. Yeah. This is there was this was like a long journey, really, that I got through through my love of culinary and my uh -huh. seeking of clean protein and clean meats and like unprocessed and and it just yeah. led me to the wild, the wild, the wild, the wild, the wild, and that's how I ended up getting into it. Um, but yeah, even as an adult onset hunter and kind of like getting involved in the community from a more perceptive standpoint as an adult, not necessarily just growing up in it and having right. those blind spots. It's like the most ethical stand-up community of people that I've been involved with. So I, I'll do it. You know, I'll teach my kids how to do it. I'll be doing it until my body doesn't let me do it anymore. Yeah. Well, you got to wait till they get bigger. You can take them out bear hunting. They can help you drag the thing back. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Or it's maybe, be you, maybe you become so successful that you just call the helicopter and they just, you know, haul and they it just out pick for it you, up right? and, and yeah, there you go. Back to the car for you, right? So, I mean, those are all possibilities. Well, I do have a, uh, one of my goals within the next five years is to have a hunting camp out in Idaho. Oh, there you go. Which to me is the best bear hunting in this country. Um, New Hampshire's awesome. Um, but I definitely want to be able to, you know, the, the, the spot and stock, big sky country type hunting really. Oh, yeah. We were just talking to somebody that lives in Montana and I, I said, how's the fly fishing out there? And she was like, oh yeah, it's like the, the best, right? The best in the world. So I want to go to Wyoming and do that. But yeah, no, New Hampshire's, uh, New Hampshire's awesome. I mean, I, I've been here I'm going on year three. I've lived all over, right? Where'd you come from? Uh, I grew up in Connecticut. Okay. And then um, I joined the Navy out of high school. So I went over and did that whole thing, and that yep. was fun, and saw some great places in the world, saw some not-so-great places in the world. Um, but I think it's all relative. Mm -hmm. um, and then got out and got into the yacht business and started crewing on private yachts all over the world, and that just transitioned into sales. So I, I lived my life in one fashion or another in the yacht and boat business. Um, and then I just got burnt out. So my father, we've always had a place in Stoddard um, on Highland Lake, and he had purchased a new property up here, and he said, why don't you come up and take a break and play lumberjack? I weighed about 300 pounds at the time because I would, you know, I was, my intake was great. There was no exercise or walking <laughs> going on, right? Doing pretty well financially, but yeah, I, you know, moving to New Hampshire has been, you know, a life changer on so many different levels, right? Not not being able to go back to what I used to do, having to, you know, f truly figure out what makes me happy. And, and the boat business for me, the, the yacht business was a lifestyle business, right? It, mm. it was something I'd get up in the morning, put two feet on the floor and know that I was going to do something that I love to do, right? Yeah. Even if even if it was dealing with somebody that I've been dealing with for a year that hadn't purchased anything yet. Right. I mean, just 
like you say, a trusted advisor, right? Helping people go through a process to, to get to some point of happiness, right? That's what it was for me in the yacht business. And I still get phone calls to this day. Like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm looking at this. What do you think? And I'm like, well, I don't do that anymore. I'm like, but here, here's, here's who you can call. Right. So it's, it's cool. Um, you know, there's a, a, a man I greatly respect in the advice business that said something. I was in Scottsdale at the uh, Exit Planning Institute conference a couple weeks ago. And he said, you know that you're the most trusted advisor when somebody calls to ask you the question first, even if they know that it's not your area of expertise or you're not the guy. And the fact that knowing that you're not in the business anymore, they'll still call you and ask those questions. That's that means real value was added. That means you were a trusted advisor. You weren't just placing a product, right? And like that, that's what makes it, I think for everybody, like they have to have that purpose and significance in what they're doing. That's what makes it fun. Right. There's like this weird like dichotomy in the advice business, especially when you're charging for advice or if or even if you're in a sales position and you get paid for advice with somebody purchases um the trick is give away as much for free as possible totally and which is counterintuitive to like everything that we've been taught but the more you give away for free the more true value you just give away for free because you love people and you just give it away to a fault that's what makes people buy from you. That's what makes people hire you. It's, it's like this weird, and it, it's not like this, like, oh, give to get thing. Like, oh, I'll give it and, you know, kind of withhold a little so that they come. Like, if you just give it away freely out of the goodness of your heart, out of a love for people, um, that's how you build relationships that are going to last and be profitable. That's how you get your sales numbers up. That's how you get clients in the advice business. And that's been a journey. And I'm sure that you can speak to it as well, even in the work you're doing now. Um, that's been a journey in the advice business, kind of learning to unlearn the old thinking of keep your intellectual property behind the curtain until somebody pays for it versus bring them into the tent and then they're paying you to be a trusted advisor and partner and implementer, and it's a totally different thing. Right. I mean, I think, you know, especially in the business we're in, uh, even the web side of the business and the SEO, right? I mean, we have we have processes that we've developed, right? We have technology that we use, we right, to to decipher what's happening with, with a client and give yeah. them suggestions. I mean, yes, I, I will give a lot of I'll give away a lot of free advice. But I do, there, there is some IP that's locked up, uh, you know, behind the curtain that we just don't want to teach. Oh, my hand's going up. Sorry. In front um, of the camera. But yeah, there. but that's, yeah. I mean, those are the ways we, you know, support our business, right? Yeah. So, and, and like you, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's certain things that you, it's, I call it the keys of the kingdom, right? Sure. But it's your kingdom, right? So you you want to be as consultative as possible with people and, and you want to show them where the deficiencies are and maybe their process or the way they market or the way they run their business or, or whatever. Right. Um, and I think that, yes, you're right. You, you converse with people on those facts and, and, and all of that information. Right. But, but there is stuff behind the curtain that, that helps you, right. That separates you from other people in your field. Right that helps you help your customers push them, you know, over the edge from a, from a financial standpoint or, right. 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 So I, I believe that everybody has processes. Oh, thousand percent. Cause yeah. the implementation in the work is different than necessarily the ideas. Right. Right. Like exactly. I, I need to, you know, just cause I share the ideas with you or just because I add the value yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that you have the ability to go implement that. And that's really where, right. There's a bunch of people that know how to build a website or people that can research SEO or people that can, you know, like, I mean, I, I remember, so I have a, um, I have a brand for one of my businesses and I built it way before the business was even launched. I knew it's where I was going. Um, and I didn't build it. I, I actually shout out to no silence media, my buddy, Dakota Barron, he owns a company in, um, in Amherst and he did some work for me. Um, but anyway, in, in kind of figuring out what I wanted the name of this brand to be and the feel of it to be and everything, I did all sorts of research. I read the Tanj naming guide. I didn't even know that naming companies were a thing, but there's companies that get right paid thousands of thousands of dollars to help companies come up with a name. And they named all these companies that I recognized. And there was a whole science behind 
why, right? So I read a, the 27 page is still on my desktop today. Tanj naming guide, T-A-N-G is the name of the company. And it basically just revealed all the secret sauce behind the process of picking a name and everything that goes into it. But even after reading that, I wasn't capable or empowered or had the expertise to actually go like, so I knew everything they considered. I knew the process. I knew kind of the concepts and ideas, but if I needed to actually pick a name for my company, I'm calling you guys, I'm calling Dakota, I'm calling Tanj. I'm still paying somebody to implement that. Mm -hmm. And now I'm in a better position to work with them effectively because I understand the process, but I still need them to to be the, to actually execute. Right. Right. And that's, and I think that's what you're getting at, right. As advisors, right. I need to show my value. Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to believe in your value before Definitely. they pay. But you and I have dedicated our professional lives to understanding how to guide, coach, execute, and transform outcomes. Right. You can't just like do that because you have information. Right. You know, that, that, that's a learned skill. And, and it's the science, right? It's the right. science of, of being you know, being that professional, being that advisor in your respective industry. Right. Right. I mean, we do it pretty well. Yeah, you do. Um, and you know, and our clients think we do too. So it's, it's great. No, I mean, it, it's been interesting to leave the app business and kind of get into something that, that is very lifestyle oriented. So this is like the second act for you. Yeah. Weird. It's, it's wild. Do I miss the app business though? I mean, yeah, I do. Right. I mean, yeah. I love being on the water. Right. But now I've got a pond in the backyard. I can just go sit down by it. There you go. I don't have to work 18, 20 hours a day and fly all over the place to meet (laughs) clients, right? Um, You know, and and we have some great fun projects coming up. So, um, and I just love New Hampshire. You know, there's not a lot of people up here. It's it's not, if you want people, you can go get people. Yes, definitely. But they're not up in your grill. No. It's, and, and it's just such a, I mean, there's land, there's space, there's a, variety of activities. I mean, we have the ocean, we have the farmlands, we have the mountains, you know, we're accessible to New York, we're accessible to Boston, we're accessible to Maine, we're accessible to Canada. It's crazy. Like it's, it's a great, it's really, really underrated. The crime rate's like the lowest in the, like in the whole country. The cost of living is still a lot better than like, you know, even 50 miles South. If you go over the border to mass, there's no state income tax. There's no state income tax. There's no sales tax. Right. I well, they get us other ways, but you know, <laughs> property taxes, right. but you know, I would rather pay taxes personally on my property than my income because my income can always go up. You know, my income can go up forever. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, I guess property taxes could go. Up I mean, paying income taxes isn't a bad thing. I mean, it just made you made money, right? Well, and, right. And, you know, well, we have that discussion with clients a lot of times. Yeah. I had a client that was lamenting their hundred thousand dollar tax bill. And I was like, all right, this sucks. But do you see how much money that you made, right? There's a reason why this was due. This is a good problem to have. We would rather have this problem than not have this problem. Yeah, I mean, not having the problem is... You didn't make any money. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right? We'd rather have the problem making money. 